Hi, my name's Stephen Crafty and I'm presenting Talking Design with RMIT University. And I'm here today with interior designer uh, Paul Hecker. He's a director of um, Hecker Guthrie and co-director is Hamish Guthrie. Welcome to the program, Paul. Thanks, Stephen. A pleasure to be here. Uh, Paul, look, you, you really have quite an extensive portfolio of work, um, but I thought uh, we'd start with a bit of your background. You originally came from Adelaide, correct? Absolutely. Um, I studied at the South Australian Institute of Technology back in the very early 80s. And why Melbourne? Is it just was Adelaide too small for someone like you? Or? I think no, certainly um, Adelaide wasn't too small for me. It was actually quite interesting. It was my parents who pushed me to come to Melbourne because I think they realised that there probably wasn't, um, in the early 80s in Adelaide, there wasn't a big design um, or, or there certainly wasn't, didn't seem to be a lot of opportunities in terms of design offices. And I think they felt that um, I would have more success um, moving to either Sydney or Melbourne. And funnily, I chose Melbourne, one, because proximity to Adelaide, but also because I just prefer the weather. I didn't want to go somewhere that was um, too warm. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, I think Melbourne's got a great climate. I think from previous conversations... I've had with you, Paul, the few that I've had. I think the early 80s in Melbourne was quite, in, it made quite an impression on you, like people like myself as well. What was it about Melbourne at the time that you really struck as being quite extraordinary? Well, I think it, it, it really, um, coming from Adelaide, and, and I always thought of Adelaide as a big international city, and, and coming to Melbourne, the, the, there would, it just struck me that, that the scale of the city and also the fact that it really felt international. I remember sort of in the early, sort of in the middle 80s when I arrived, Rosati's had just opened in Little Collins Street and it just seemed like such an extraordinary venue. Flinders Lane, I think. Was it Flinders, Flinders Lane, Lane yeah. yes. Yeah, Rosati's in Flinders Lane. It just struck me as such an extraordinary venue. Um, and it, and it, Melbourne just felt like, it, it, coming from Adelaide, it really felt like, there was a real, it was a real centre of design. It was felt like an international city. Um, it was just an exciting place to be. Um, and certainly I've never, I've never really changed my opinion of Melbourne. I've all, I, I, I really sort of embrace and, and love the city of Melbourne. Um, Paul, you worked for a couple of firms before you started on your own? Yeah, absolutely. And um, who were they all? I worked, initially I worked for Daryl Jackson Architects and, you know, I've got to say it wasn't the easiest time to get a job um, in design. Certainly um, I found it was it the recession. It worked, well, it was. And, and um, I can remember having a couple of interviews with Daryl Jackson and, and being so thrilled when, when I, I received an offer. So I spent uh, a couple of years with Daryl and I've got to say, it, it was interesting. He was probably one of the first architects who saw the importance of, of into having interior designers that to, and understood that we do have a different perspective to architects, that we do see things slightly differently and that, that there was a real value in employing people who, who potentially... Um, worked from the inside out rather than the inside of the outside in. So um, 
I spent a couple of very interesting years there. It was a great place to 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 do your apprenticeship, I think. And so when did you actually join forces with Hamish Guthrie? When was... Well, Hamish, interestingly, Hamish and I met each other at Daryl Jackson. So he was a... Um, uh, still studying when I was a junior designer there, and he he came in as the print boy, and um, while he was still studying design, so we we've known each other for a very long time, and we kept uh, our careers kept intersecting. We we when we worked on when I worked on Crown Casino, um, which was in the um, sort of early and middle 90s Hamish was also working we were working at that stage for different firms but we both were working on the same project so we kept bumping into each other and I think I understood I've always admired Hamish's aesthetic I've always admired his approach so it was interesting that we kept bumping into each other and Kerry Phelan and I started went out on our own in the late 90s and we um, set up an office and it wasn't very long before we realised we would like to bring some more people into the, um, into the company. And Haim was an obvious choice. He'd just finished working on George's um, department store and it, it felt like he had some extraordinary um, skills in retail that would be really valuable. So at that point, we asked him to come um, to become a part of heck um it was a heck of feeling at the time and then very quickly became heck of feeling and guthrie and now it's heck guthrie and now it's heck guthrie so we we've run the gamut we've been paul hecker heck of feeling heck of feeling and guthrie and now heck guthrie um paul how would you describe you know for those who don't know your work it's it's fairly broad i mean if you look at your website you really cover apartments absolutely Absolutely everything. I, there's not much you don't get involved in. Is that both a problem and also an opportunity? I mean, how do you become so diverse? Well, I think we've always we we've, we've always had the mindset that that we don't. Um, I can remember working with Jeff Coppola from Bates Smart. One of the things that he he said, which. I had always had this approach and it was quite an elitist approach where you go, oh, we don't do that. You know, that's not the way we design. That's not what we do. That's not, you know, we have an aesthetic or we have an approach and that's what we do. And working with Jeff Kopolov from Bates Smart, he said to me once, look at everything, keep an open mind. And then once you've really considered things, then make decisions about what you want to do and how you want to do it. And it just, and it was this kind of idea of being open-minded that there, there are 50,000 ways to skin a cat or to design something. And all of them are valid. All of them are reasonable if they are considered. And if they, if there isn't a really strong idea. And I think we've always maintained it was interesting trying to even understand what our aesthetic is. I think we have... Well, what is it? Uh, what would you say well, it is? Well, I, I think that's a really interesting thing. I think we are still discovering it. I think we can talk to ideas. We always, you know, when we talk about creating space, I always start with how do, you know, asking a client, I never say, what do you want it to look like? I always say, how do you want to feel in this space? What do you want this space to do for you? So understanding that, 
is understanding that we're not starting with an aesthetic. We're starting with ideas about how you want to make people feel within a space. And that, that I think, has stayed with, with me. That is this, the overriding way I look at design is about how do I create space and how do I make people feel within a space? And that's not necessarily anything to do with an aesthetic. Um, having said that, underlying all of our work we have a um um we have some some um sort of fundamental ideas around um quality and and authenticity and and longevity and and craft and and trying to to um create spaces that have a sense of quality. And again, they're not necessary ideas around aesthetic. They're ideas around quality of space as opposed to an aesthetic. And because we think like that, then it allows us to be very broad in our aesthetic. If I was to, to sort of say, what are the things that we're drawn to? We're drawn to, um, you know, Japanese design. We're drawn to Scandinavian design. But I think sort of, more uh, uh, over and above that, I, I'm sort of I'm obsessed with sort of historical design, and and I love architecture through the history and one uh, through the through the ages. And one of the things that in design school that we really focused on was design history. So I'm absolutely fascinated by sort of um, old architecture and old interiors and things like that. And, all of those things inform the way we approach um, design today. I mean, we, there are so many things that influence what we do and how we go about doing it um, that, that I think then sometimes you, you find yourself with this very broad aesthetic. You know, we... I was, going to mention, at, well, I was going to mention, Paul, that it's something that I'm really passionate about is the history of design design but it seems to be in the current crop of designers and I'd have to say probably I don't know whose fault it is but, but it seems to be that there's a lack of knowledge in terms of not just you know in the immediate past of architecture design fashion decorative arts I'm actually continually surprised by that lack of interest even when people say look I don't haven't heard of that person or haven't heard of that thing there seems to be a lack of interest even in picking up a book or finding out a little bit more about certain people in the history of a city or a building. Why is that? Absolutely. I am fascinated by the world in general, not just about the design world. So I've always, you know, I'm always trying to find out more about sort of um, things completely unrelated to interior des to design. But I, I do find it really interesting that, that, um, people aren't necessarily interested in what has gone before. And I, I think the whole idea of what is contemporary design is a really interesting thing because I go, well, contemporary design fundamentally means what you're doing at the moment. So it's not an aesthetic. It's just about what seems right or, or relevant at, at any given point of time. And I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing that, that most designers now seem to be completely and utterly obsessed with mid 20th century modern and then from there forward but they're completely disinterested in in anything that is prior to that and i think it's such a shame because there is so much to be learned from 
design that predates the mid 20th century. And I, I fundamentally for me, it, a lot of it gets down to things like materiality. And I go, there's, there are a couple of things that I would talk to. And that one is um, architects and designers used to design using design manuals. And therefore, you, there's a huge amount of coherency. When you look at Victorian architecture or Edwardian art, architecture, it all sits very comfortably together because people used um, methodologies that were prescribed. They also used materialities that, that were, you know, pre-1950s. You know, the building materials were stone, brick, timber, plaster, steel and glass. And... Post-1950s, so many new materialities have been invented that have allowed architects and interior designers to explore things, which I think is very interesting. But I think in the hands of great designers and architects, then it becomes really exciting. But in the hands of people who, who are relatively ordinary, I think what it's shown is there's, you know, a thing that I call that the sort of the mid-20th century ugliness. And I think that has that the big problem for design at the moment is because there are no rules, people can do whatever they like. And because of that, I think there's a real lack of coherency in, in what is being created. Um, and I, I think, think, sorry, sorry, sorry. if you look at your, your, the way you approach things, uh, you do, you are a reductionist. You obviously reduce, obviously you reduce things to what is appropriate and keep things yep. That Japanese influence is obviously very strong. The materials are very simple. You tend to kind of uh, not do, you know, you don't overwork a space. You really keep no. it to, to what is appropriate and what isn't. But I agree with you. I think there is, is you're coming from um, a perspective of knowledge and, and the original house or the original building. Um, how do you change things? How do you make people more aware of, the past, or is it just uh, a, a lost battle? Because oh. I see increasingly that people almost go, "Well, does it matter?" And I go, "Well, it does actually." Because it does. It, it certainly does matter, and especially when you know when you have a Swedish person who works in your office not realising that Victoria was one of the great or, or Melbourne was one of the great Victorian cities. And you go, is that because we have lost so much of our heritage over time that it no longer reads as a Victorian city? And I think this is the big... The, the, this is where I get frustrated is when I see councils and government um, allowing the demolition of our, of, of our heritage... Um, and, you know, I now call it uh, my heritage because I go, well, I've been here now longer than I was in Adelaide. And it absolutely kills me to see, see sort of old buildings being knocked down. And it's one thing to knock them down, but to replace them with something ordinary just seems criminal to me because we can never, ever build like we built 100 years ago. Those crafts don't exist anymore. Those skills don't exist so, Paul, when you're, when you're looking at, say, period homes for clients and they're very keen to kind of rip the guts out of it, uh, how difficult is it to kind of perhaps just say, look, let's go quietly here, let's go slowly, let's think about the original fabric before we start making major moves? Or is it difficult when people kind of, they want the latest and the best and 
there's that tendency to just rip to shreds. I think there is a tendency to do that. And we, our job is to guide people through a process that shows that they can do both, that you can have a completely modern, up-to-date home with, like you say, all the bells and whistles, but still pay respect to the original house. So we, we, that's, that's one of the skills that I think we have, the ability to, to run these two, to run two programs side by side. One is the respect of the original house and how do we deal with that and how do we um, be respectful of what, is, what exists and then how do we sort of create a program around design to insert contemporary elements within that. And a lot of the time we do that by making it um, an element that can be removed. I always say, I like to, whenever we're doing an old house, I always like to say, I like to think that in 20 years' time or 50 years' time, someone could come along and remove what we've done and we are left with the original house. So it is having that kind of respect. And we take people on a journey. And I think this, this for me, is all about the way we sell design. So much of the way we approach it is to make sure that the stories that we are telling are compelling so that clients almost have to get on board. You know, when you can make a story, a story compelling enough or a reason compelling enough, people feel almost obliged to get on board. And I think that's the real key, making sure that the story that you tell is, is a compelling story. So we always, whenever we present, there is a story behind what we're doing and it talks to history and it talks to neighbourhood and it talks to a whole lot of, it talks to a whole lot of things that um, um, that make a story that is is so compelling that we our job is to get people on board to to excite people in a way that that you know I'm not trying to tell people how to do things but I want to get to get people to embrace a certain methodology and a certain way of approaching. Um, Paul, I mean, you know, it's also the, you know, there's one thing about creating a story in a house, but then you're in a sense creating the same story in retail or in hotels. Absolutely. In apartments. It has to be the same connection. And the same approach. And that's exactly right. We, we, every time we do a presentation to a client around design, there is there are stories that underlie it, whether it's about neighbourhood, whether it's about history, whether it's about um, culture, whether whatever it happens to be, there is always an underlying driver that every, we want to tell a story that people can get on board with. So when we present, we, we have some overriding themes and ideas, and this is regardless of whether we're doing retail or hospitality or any of those things. Um, there are ideas that are com we hope are compelling and then there are um, what we call big ideas. We do a presentation of the, um, sort of key, sort of almost chapters, and we give the interior a series of chapters. And, and so, for instance, a chapter might be internal enclosures or chapters might be the table is everything or something along those lines where we can start to build 
um, thematic ideas within the interior and they're ideas that everyone can understand very easily. And, and what we're trying to do is give clients a vocabulary that allows them to say, I like it or I don't like it and give them words around ideas that allow them to say, I like this aspect of it, but I didn't like this aspect. So we're trying, otherwise people go, I think I like it or I'm not sure or I generally liked it, but there were certain things in there that I'm not sure about. So I think for, for me, it's telling a compelling story, putting a rigorous, uh, creating a rigorous presentation. All of those things are incredibly important. So the way you sell a story or the way you sell design um, and, a, and a, um, the way you do a pitch, there has to be a story and it has to be compelling. Um, Paul, if we look at, say, a, a specific segment of the market, say apartments, which you're involved in, you kind yeah, of yeah, you do a number of interiors, and there must be just a limit to how many stories can be told when you're, a developer says, look, I just want X apartments, X size, X this. You know, how do you kind of create something memorable in something that is basically developer-driven? Oh, yeah, and but there is still always a story, and sometimes the stories between different developers will there will be um there will be there might be common themes but but there are always stories that we 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 try and find for instance we're doing a project in near the harbor in sydney and we're talking about ideas about transparency translucency pearlescency pearlescence all of those sort of things that start to talk to ideas around water so we always try and find ideas that aren't necessarily an aesthetic, but they're always things that kind of are evocative. So we're trying to find an evocative moment that, that, that people can, can latch on to. Because the last thing people want, you know, with that first presentation is, here is a kitchen cabinet, here is a bathroom tile, here is a... So we're always trying to develop an idea of, something that is evocative and sometimes the stories are very very simple and sometimes they are more complex but there will always be a story and there will always be something that drives you know for instance if the architecture is driving the way we deal with the interior then we look to the architecture from for ideas around quality and color and and if, if the building is reflective, then, then those sort of, sort of ideas about sort of quality of light and shadow and things like that will be drawn into the way we might approach the interior. So it's really this idea of always trying to come up with some kind of evocative story that underpins the decisions. Otherwise, all the decisions you make seem to be random. So we're trying to avoid those random, you know, why did you do that? Oh, I don't know. It just, it's pretty or it's nice. We try and put a story together that make the decisions that we make through the process seem determined rather than random. Um, Paul, look, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. I think we could talk about design right through. I uh, think you're right, Steve. I think and, you're right. And I think, um, I think you hit on a few important, very, you know, very important areas such as, you know, history and heritage 
And uh, look, congratulations on all your awards. I mean, uh, you've won several awards, including the very prestigious, uh, the Rig Design Prize at the National Gallery of Victoria a couple of years ago or a few years ago, and you continually uh, win prizes. But look, well done. And, um, and I look forward to seeing more of your work um, as we move forward. Thanks, Stephen. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. You've been listening to Stephen Crafty. Talking Design is produced by RMIT University and brought to you in partnership with Melbourne City Council. If you'd like to stay up to date with all things Talking Design, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at talkingdesign underscore.